You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the summer of the year 1665, a lone Spanish fregata sailed north across the Caribbean basin. Her holds were filled with pieces of eight, with Spanish silver such as coin, plate, and candelabras. They were filled with pearls, rubies, diamonds, jewelry, silk, and indigo. Every gunport held a Dutch cannon, and the armory was filled with Spanish steel and Dutch muskets. The men on board were bearded, they were blonde, and they had been bronzed by the sun. They wore the clothes of a Spanish lord, from their rich silk shirts to their very fancy hats, their embroidered coats down to their very fine leather boots. Those men feasted on European breads, roasted meat, and sweet Spanish red wine. They were men who were alive, and they were rich, and they were headed home to Port Royal, Jamaica. Their captain, Henry Morgan, must have been thinking, though. He must have wondered exactly what they would find when they arrived. Port Royal had been a raucous town peopled by Jewish and Dutch merchants who were willing to trade in ill-gotten goods, peopled by rum and wine mongers, prostitutes and pirates, mostly pirates. But the men on board had been gone nigh on two years. Morgan must have wondered if the English still even held the island. It was possible that the Spanish had invaded in force and taken Jamaica back. His superiors were probably waiting for him. Governor Littleton, Commodore Mings, and Captain Mansvelt would surely be there to debrief him. As they sailed north, the sun sank beyond the horizon to their larboard, and the Brethren of the Coast sailed home to what they would find a very different Port Royal. This is episode number 20, Providence. In Jamaica, the new governor, Thomas Modiford, had arrived and replaced Littleton. He brought with him hundreds of planters from Barbados. These were respectable English colonists and plantation masters. With them came all of their slaves and the entire slave trading infrastructure. Modiford himself was a factor, or what you might consider a wealthy investor, or a shareholder who held a large number of shares. He was a factor in a group called the Royal Adventurers, who held a monopoly, a royally stamped monopoly, on the English slave trade. He was one of the top investors in a company that had no competition, dealing in the richest and most profitable industry in the entire world. Modiford also brought with him his lieutenant governor, a man named Colonel Edward Morgan. Colonel Morgan was the uncle of Henry Morgan, who had sided with the royalist cause during the English Civil War, and who had gained a small amount of wealth and prestige. 
His loyalty paid off after the Stuart dynasty was returned to the throne. He was given an estate back in England, he was given a plantation on Barbados, and then given the second highest position on what was potentially England's richest colonial holding. But Edward Morgan's expertise wasn't in growing sugar or rum production. He was a military man with more than 40 years' experience leading men into battle. And Charles II meant to see that experience put to use. Edward Morgan had one job, defend Jamaica, and he had his work cut out for him. In that long and undeclared war for the Caribbean, the English, the French, and the Dutch all chipped away at centuries-old Spanish possessions, but they would still happily snipe an island or two from each other if politics and circumstances allowed. For Jamaica, and for Colonel Morgan, the French were not really a threat. England and France were, for a time, at peace, and the closest French holdings were on the northwest side of Hispaniola. The only real threat that the French embodied was an economic one. Tortuga, just off the coast of Hispaniola, was something of a rival of Port Royals, but still an ally. Both were pirate haunts, or what the people of the time would have called privateer havens, that dealt largely in rich goods obtained from the Spanish. They were usually bought at the point of a cutlass. The Spanish, though, well, they were always a threat to Jamaica. It was, after all, an island that had previously belonged to the Spanish. Their nearest neighbor was Cuba, which was, to the Spanish Empire, the jewel of the Caribbean. It was one of Spain's oldest, strongest, most highly prized, and jealously guarded possessions. In addition to Cuba, Hispaniola and the Spanish Main completed a Spanish encirclement of Jamaica, and an attack could come from any direction at any time. In fact, Spain was known to frequently mass fleets in Portobello, at Cuba, and on the Yucatan. These were really, when we look back on history, really sort of just fleets in being, meant to intimidate the English and keep them from raiding too heavily on their coastlines. These were fleets that were huge and impressive, but they never sailed and never invaded Jamaica. Part of the reason they didn't invade was because, in the previous few years, relations between England and Spain had begun to normalize somewhat. This had a lot to do with changes back in Europe. The Habsburg monarchy in Spain, and indeed, really, the entire Spanish Empire, was beginning to fail. While Captain Morgan was gone, Philip III had died to his own great relief, and his son, Carlos II, was, well, he wasn't a healthy young boy. The Habsburgs, perhaps even most European monarchies in general, are kind of notorious for their inbreeding. It's meant to keep the bloodline strong and as royal as possible. Much like the Ptolemaic dynasty in ancient Egypt or the Targaryen dynasty in A Song of Ice and Fire, they married as closely related people as they could find to keep their blood as blue as they could. And generations of inbreeding creates genetic abnormalities. These couplings wind up with Weak, sickly, sometimes deformed children, frequently disabled or otherwise impaired, and usually not at all suited to rule. Carlos II was one such child. The Spanish government officially claimed that he was as hale as healthy as could be, but foreign monarchs and ambassadors knew better. The child was called a quote-unquote monstrosity, and he was not possessed of his full mental functions. He had a veritable army of wet nurses, something like 40 of them in total, who were intended to nurse him back to health. 
these women were forced to undergo a shockingly thorough examination. They had to be between the ages of 20 and 40. They had to have ample breasts for milking, and they had to have a family tree that held no hints of Jews, Muslims, or any witchcraft at all. But despite all of this, Carlos was still a weak and sick child. His mother, Mariana of Austria, would go on to become queen regent, and she would eventually sign some very important treaties between England and Spain. Her job was to strengthen the Spanish Empire, and she couldn't do that fighting a losing battle over Jamaica. So Spain, for a time at least, was not a huge threat to the island. But there was one threat to Port Royal that Colonel Morgan did take very seriously. That was the Dutch. What was called the United Provinces, one time called the Low Countries, was once England's strongest ally. The English and the Dutch, though, by this time were in a cycle of on-again and off-again wars for control over the trade of the North Sea, the English Channel, and in the Caribbean. And once again, in 1665, things were heating up. King Charles II sent Governor Modi Ford and Colonel Morgan to Jamaica with three main directives. The first was to end piracy against Spain, their new best friend. The second was to forge Jamaica into a rich, prosperous colony, complete with slave plantations and rum distilleries, much like they had elsewhere in the Caribbean. And their third was to make war on the United Provinces' holdings in the Caribbean. They were to prepare, outfit, and go on expeditions against any nearby Dutch colonial holdings. This is all very kind of 1984, isn't it? It's, we are not at war with Oceania, we are at war with East Asia. We have always been at war with East Asia. You know, we're not at war with Spain, we're at war with the Dutch, and we've always been at war with the Dutch. It's all about who has the most power in the New World at the time, and everybody's struggling to be top dog. So the new governor immediately went to work. He sent Admiral Mings and his predecessor, Governor Littleton, back to England, they were both, for different reasons, in some level of trouble with the crown, and they weren't to be permitted in Jamaica anymore. He then announced that there were to be no more letters of mark against the Spanish signed by his office. And then he moved the capital of Jamaica away from Port Royal, inland, to a place called St. Iago. Port Royal was a rowdy and violent place, filled with pirates. The beach was a forest of tents and lean-tos filled with pirates sleeping off last night's rum. The few paved streets leading from the docks were mostly filled with Spanish-era merchant shops and warehouses, but from there, town became a maze of dilapidated Spanish buildings, muddy alleyways, and a few hastily built structures that were offering rum, song, food, company, and prostitutes. Really, it's mostly just the rum and prostitutes. One in four buildings in Port Royal was either a tavern or a brothel, catering to the soldiers, but mostly to the buccaneers that made up the majority of Port Royal's population. It was said of the pirates of Port Royal, quote, Wine and women drained them of their wealth to such a degree that in little time some of them were reduced to beggary, end quote. That was kind of the cycle of the pirates and privateers of Port Royal. They would go on a raid, earn a little money, and then come home to spend it on wine and rum, and most of all, on women. Most of the pirates had a favorite lady waiting at home for them, a prostitute that knew their name and catered to their particular desires and needs. Not always just sexually, but many of these prostitutes knew these men well enough that they kind of catered to their emotional needs as well. 
Some women, though, didn't have time for that sort of luxury. One local woman, named Mary Carlton, was likened to a barber's chair. When one man was out, another man came in. There were, of course, religious men in Port Royal of many different faiths. There were Jews, of course, that had been there for some time. There were many English Protestants, but they accepted both the Puritan element and the more traditional Anglican element, and they also had a number of Quakers and somewhat more radical Christian faiths. However, a local minister called Port Royal, quote, the most wicked and sinful place on earth, end quote, which gave rise to the saying that Port Royal was the richest and wickedest city in the world. But Governor Modiford's job was to change all of that. His planters were bringing more than just slaves with them. They were bringing their families. Edward Morgan brought his whole family. Unfortunately, his wife and one of his daughters died on the passage, but the rest of his family took up residence on a plantation and attempted to build a real life on Jamaica away from the pirates of Port Royal. These women that came with the governor, the lieutenant governor, and many of his planters were the first women on Jamaica since the English seized the island that were at all respectable. Prior to this, it did occasionally happen that a very lucky or a particularly lovely prostitute might catch the eye of a local merchant or a planter and become his wife, but these new proper English women were trained and educated in England to be truly marriageable women. They were courteous, they were poised, they were witty at the dinner table, when it was proper, and the influence of these women on Jamaica really can't be understated. Men who had seen before a life of rum and whores with no prospects now saw the possibility of setting down roots and maybe even starting a family. A number of the more successful and somewhat more respectable privateer captains took note of this. When Modiford stopped granting his letters of mark, these few men would take what little coin they had to buy some land, perhaps a couple of African slaves, and start looking for a wife. Others, however, didn't exactly care for that option. One pirate, a man named Captain Monroe, cared so little for having his royal authority stripped that he turned true pirate. He went and captured a Spanish prize and sailed it boldly into Port Royal. He, his crew, and his ship were all captured by the governor's authorities. Captain Monroe and his crew were all hanged in the town square as a warning to any other potential pirates. However, that ship was not returned to Spain. With Admiral Mings having been sent back to England, that Dutch captain, Edward Mansvelt, became the admiral of the Jamaica station and the unofficial leader of the Brethren of the Coast. He and the new governor, Modiford, and Edward Morgan, well, they conferred. They found themselves with something of a dilemma. The orders of the king were to stop any piracy against the Spanish. However, they knew the reality of that situation. As requests for new letters of mark were denied, the men of Port Royal found themselves out of work and unable to buy themselves that rum and those women. The Jamaican Navy was comprised primarily of the privateer ships that raided the Spanish and spent the proceeds back in Port Royal. However, now they were bringing in no prizes and no gold. The merchant families that had operated in Jamaica for generations were, well, they were furious. There were no more goods and no more gold coming into Port Royal, so they had no one to do business with left on the island. 
You see, the harbor there in Port Royal began to empty, and all of their naval vessels began to flee to other harbors, mostly to Tortuga. Tortuga was, at this point, controlled by the French, and the governor there was happy to issue letters of marque against the Spanish, so the buccaneers fled there. Their militia back in Jamaica was down to only about 150 men from the height where it had been just a few months before of 600, and all of the proper English planters, well, they now had nobody left to protect them. However, Modiford, Morgan, and Mansvelt had plans to counter this. King Charles had been explicit in his commands. The Dutch are our new enemies. Unfortunately, the Dutch were farther away than the Spanish, and their shipping lanes were better guarded. Any attack on them had to be really a major expedition, not just a couple of ships on a privateering raid. So Edward Morgan's job was to provision, outfit, and collect a fleet to attack the Dutch. His first job was to entice the Brethren of the Coast to join the fleet, so he let it be known that every sailor on board this mission, despite the fact that it was an officially sanctioned royal mission, would receive equal shares of any loot taken. He then wrote a will, leaving all of his New World possessions to his sons and his estate back in England to his eldest living daughter, Mary Elizabeth Morgan. In a few months' time, the fleet was ready to sail. It was comprised of about 10 ships and more than 650 men, with Colonel Edward Morgan leading them, being the most experienced English military man in the Caribbean. The plan was to attack the unsuspecting Dutch fleet at St. Kitts, and then, with them out of the way, they could go on and take their Dutch settlements at St. Eustatus, Sabo, and Curacao. However, in their first engagement at St. Eustatus, quote, Colonel Morgan, with 319 men, landed, and, after small opposition, took the place, and the good old colonel, leaping out of the boat, and, being a corpulent man, got a strain, and his spirit being great, he pursued over earnestly the enemy on a hot day, so that he suddenly died, to almost the loss of the whole design. End quote. Despite this loss, however, they did take St. Eustatus, but when they found the storehouses, they were in for something of a shock. They found in there only cotton and a few muskets. This wasn't exactly the rich haul they were hoping for, so about half of the fleet, mostly brethren of the coast, left to go find richer hauls, and then the loyal English vessels gathered the 900 or so slaves that they found for transport back to Port Royal. That second group, those brethren of the coast, those pirates, took the island of Nevis, but found little more plunder there. In the end, the entire fleet sailed home, whether it be to Port Royal or Tortuga, with their slaves and cotton, but having lost their most experienced military man. In a letter written by Modi Ford, he blames the, quote, loss of the design of Curacao, end quote, on the, quote, covetousness of some of the officers and soldiers, end quote. He went on to say that they, quote, plunder them and hide the goods in holes and creeks, end quote. This was because the haul that they brought back was so paltry, just some cotton and muskets, that he believed they had found richer plunder and hidden it away from his eyes. He thought that it was something of a personal insult to him because he had stopped issuing those letters of mark. It was around this time, though, that Henry Morgan sailed back into Port Royal. Captain Morgan would have been surprised to find his family there waiting for him on the island. He didn't know that they were coming from Barbados and from England, but his family were waiting for him. 
A decade ago, their cousin had left England to help take Jamaica, and in the New World, he was beginning to make something of a name for himself. The last that anybody in Jamaica had heard of Henry was from a Dutch sailor who sailed into port, saying that the Welshman had not died on some lonely Spanish shore, as everybody had assumed, but he had sacked the great city of Grenada and was headed home. His arrival must have been kind of a balm to his cousins after losing their father, and also something of a shock. That one portrait that we have of a very young Henry Morgan shows us a plump-cheeked Welshman, but the man that sailed into harbor was tanned and blonde and dressed in those lordly Spanish clothes. He was swarthy and confident and rich. The Morgans in Jamaica were not rich, however. They were forced to write the crown for their father's back pay, and they were trying to scratch a living out of the soil of Jamaica. Unfortunately, we don't have much in the way of personal journals or records around this time, but we do know that soon Henry Morgan married his cousin, Mary Elizabeth, and sort of became the patriarch of the Morgan clan on the island. He was wealthy, he was experienced, he knew the island well, and he knew military matters, and he was married to the eldest of Edward Morgan's children. So he was not only the colonel's nephew, he was also married directly into his family and the eldest Morgan on the island. He would have, of course, met and debriefed the new governor, as well as his commanding officer, Mansvelt, on his raid along the Spanish main, giving them their first real news of it. Back in England, though, King Charles II already knew most of that story. The Spanish ambassador was livid, bringing King Charles news of Morgan's outrages in their holdings, comparing them to those of Francis Drake about a century before, even calling Henry Morgan El Drake. Henry Morgan wasn't yet the most famous man in the New World, but his name was on everybody's lips. From the monarchs of Europe, of Spain and England, down to the governors such as Modi Ford, down to the Port Royal merchants who were grateful for all of the swag and haul that he had brought in, revitalizing their business, down to all of the whores of Port Royal who were grateful for much the same reason. Morgan had been gone for two years, and now he was seemingly back from the dead, walking down the streets of Port Royal. Then, after he was recently back in town, Modi Ford called a council. Mansvelt, Morgan, and a few of the prominent planters and leaders of the Jewish and Quaker communities were all present. The governor and the admiral put Morgan to work. He wasn't to go back to sea, at least not yet. He had a new wife and a family to look after, but he was given charge of the Jamaican militia and rebuilding Fort Charles. His military experience was perhaps the best on the island, at least now that his uncle was dead, and Modi Ford had need of his skill leading men in battle. So Captain Morgan was seen to the rebuilding of the army, but their navy and economy were still hurting. This was doubly important, as the Spanish were harassing the English despite their nominal peace. More so, the Spanish were amassing the windward fleet in Cuba, a real threat from Spain. The other fleets that they had gathered in Cuba and on the Spanish main were threats to be sure, but the windward fleet was something else entirely. They had been threatening to amass the fleet ever since the English took the island in 1655, but for one reason or another, usually economy, they weren't really able to get it started. However, now in 1665, after the raid of Henry Morgan, that fleet existed. They were all coming together, and it was a sight to behold. These were galleons as well as ships of the line that Spain was building that could really demolish the English presence on Jamaica. 
They knew that this fleet could represent the end of the English holdings in the New World. That threat was the real reason that the governor called this council. They elected to send messengers to Tortuga and Hispaniola. The governor was once again granting letters of mark. These letters of mark were not intended to amass a large fleet for a huge expedition such as they had had under Colonel Morgan. This was meant to rebuild their navy, have lots of privateer vessels in port at Port Royal guarding their shores. And the Dutch were rich, but not as rich as the Spanish. But the English still had orders from King Charles to attack Dutch settlements in large numbers, something that couldn't be done by some merchant raiding by a few privateers. So a fleet was gathering in Jamaica. With Colonel Morgan dead, this fleet was to be led by the admiral of the Jamaica station, that man Mansvelt. I should note that some historians believe that Captain Morgan was in fact on board this fleet that was massing in Port Royal. Alexander Exquimelin writes, quote, At this time there was in Jamaica an old buccaneer called Mansvelt who planned to get a fleet together to raid the mainland. Seeing that Morgan was a young man with plenty of courage, the old buccaneer invited him to join the expedition and made him vice-admiral of the fleet. When the fleet put to sea, it consisted of 15 vessels with 300 men, including Walloons and Frenchmen on board. End quote. Some historians take this at face value, that Henry Morgan was made vice-admiral and was part of the fleet. However, this account from Exquimelin comes before Exquimelin met Henry Morgan, and there is very good evidence that he was in fact in Jamaica rebuilding the fort and the militia, that evidence coming from official English sources. The most convincing evidence that Henry Morgan stayed on the island of Jamaica, to me at least, is how capable a commander Henry Morgan turned out to be, and how disastrous this voyage turned out. The target of this expedition, on orders from King Charles, down through Governor Modiford, down to Mansvelt, was the Dutch city of Curacao. This was the same city that the voyage under Edward Morgan had failed to take. They had failed to even reach it. Curacao, though, was rich. It was undefended, and it was technically at war with the English. But the Dutch were Protestants. Their traders were friendly with the pirates and merchants of Port Royal, and they worked together to make everyone richer. If you took European politics out of the equation, and really you should, because the people living in the New World had very little contact, at least ready contact, with old Europe, then these men were friends. The Caribbean was officially the dominion of kings, but around this time, they really had very little influence in there. The men and women in the Caribbean were not beholden to the whims of their monarchs. Beyond that, a large number of the Brethren of the Coast who made up this fleet were themselves Dutch. The fleet's own commander, Admiral of the English Fleet at the Jamaica Station, Edward Mansvelt, was Dutch himself. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. 
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The fleet never even sailed in the direction of Curacao against the wishes of King Charles. Now all manner of excuses were given after the fact. Everything from secret information obtained en route from clandestine sources to unruly and mutinous sailors, but the reality was this. The Spanish were hated, the Spanish were Catholic, and the Spanish were very, very wealthy. And the Spanish settlement at Cartago never before sacked, was undefended. So, for whatever reason, probably the plunder, the fleet set sail for Almirante Bay on the coast of Costa Rica. They made landfall at Cape Blanco, where 600 men, unlike the 300 that Exquimelin said, disembarked and began a 70-mile trek inland. This army subsisted off the stores of unsuspecting villages on their route, but one native woman escaped to raise the alarm in Cartago. When Mansvelt and his 600 men arrived at the city, they found the militia waiting for them. Here, once again, the sources begin to disagree, but some argue that the buccaneers made themselves a menace. They were raping women, burning churches, looting what they could, and drinking all of the rum. But most sources say, and I tend to agree with them, that this army saw the fort and all of her cannon manned by hundreds of ready soldiers, and they turned around and went back to their ships. As the English fled back into the mountains and the jungle, back to their ships, the Spanish pursued them, and at least once they came into contact, and the Spanish dealt a pretty severe blow to the English. But most of the men made it to their ships, and Mansvelt had some thinking to do. To quote Stephen Talty in his book Empire of Blue Water, quote, With his men exhausted and famished, Mansfield knew that attacking a Spanish town without permission would be trouble. Attacking a Spanish town without taking it was worse. London tended to look with more favor on illegal missions that were at least successful. Desperate for a prize, the marauders turned toward two islands in a long-held dream, a pirate republic. End quote. The dream of a pirate republic was old. Ever since the days of the Greco-Roman pirates, when they had been named enemies of the human race, pirates had been outcasts. They were rebels, and in many cases, anarchists. They were criminals who rejected their rulers, which in turn made them reject their societies and their families. If the urge to rejoin civilization ever came to them, they found themselves facing death. So, the dream of a place peopled by pirates, run by pirates, for the good of pirates, went back centuries, millennia even, and it would continue long after this era. 
But Mansvelt's dream of a pirate haven was also fiercely practical. He had just recently failed, and that failure would have dented his reputation with the Brethren, as well as his standing in Jamaica. He needed, desperately, a success that both the Brethren, the government in Jamaica, and the crown back in England would look upon with favor. He chose a pair of tiny islands that were southwest of Jamaica, much closer to the Spanish main and the rich Spanish shipping that came out of there. There were the island of Providence and the nearby islet of Santa Catalina. Now, we've talked about these islands before on this show, actually. Providence was the chosen home of that group of uh, pious, patriotic Puritan pirates that took the island from Spain in the time of Oliver Cromwell. Those pirates who banned drinking and gambling and whoring and all of the fun stuff about pirates and mostly just prayed silently and attacked Spanish shipping. Now, after those Puritan pirates took the island, the Spanish retook it quite quickly and easily, but it was so close to terra firma and right in between the mainland and Jamaica that it was really a perfect home for the Brethren of the Coast. It had everything that they needed. The islands themselves were surrounded by barrier reefs that prevented any ship from coming close to the island. The only way to get into their pretty fantastic harbor there was through a winding, moving passage that was difficult to navigate and dangerous for any ships that didn't know the voyage. If you managed to actually make it through that passage, the harbor itself was very defensible. It was large enough to hold several ships and had a pretty excellent fort guarding the harbor, so the guns on all of your vessels could be pointed directly at the harbor entrance, as well as the even larger guns on top of the hill fort. That sort of potential defense, an island that no ship could approach except for one difficult passage that was heavily guarded was, well, it was perfect. It could prevent invasion from Spain or the Netherlands or France or even England. These men, the Brethren of the Coast, would be beholden to nobody. They would have no rules and no rulers. Governor Modi Ford wrote in a letter after the fact, quote, the old fellow was resolved, as he tells me, never to see my face until he had done some service to his majesty. And therefore, with two hundred men, which were all left him, and about eighty of them French, he resolved to attempt the island of Providence, which was formerly English, and by the Spaniards' whole armada taken from us in 1641, and ever since carefully garrisoned. In order to this he set sail, and, being an excellent coaster, which is his chief if not only virtue, in the night he came within half a mile of it, by an unusual passage among rocks, where they say ships never came, and in the morning early landed and marched four leagues, and surprised the governor, who was taken prisoner. The soldiers got into the fort, being about two hundred, but on conditions to be landed on the main, they yielded twenty-seven pieces of ordnance, one hundred double jars of powder, shot, and all of the things necessary were found, and, the fort very strongly built, they acknowledge but very little plunder. Only one hundred and fifty negroes. They brought off one hundred, and left thirty-five men and Captain Hatzel, keeper of the magazine. They say many of the guns have Queen Elizabeth's arms engraven on them. End quote. Before we move on, I'd like to take a look at that very last line about the guns having Queen Elizabeth's mark upon them. Several episodes ago, in the episode about the Spanish Armada, we discussed the guns on board the English vessels. Most cannon, especially the best cannon made in Europe, are made of bronze. Bronze is a tough and malleable metal that can take repeated uses as a cannon. 
However, bronze was difficult to come by in England, and because of the embargoes put on England by Spain around the time of the Armada, they were forced to look elsewhere. Iron, which was pretty plentiful in England at the time, didn't really make the best cannon. When you tried to put it on board a ship, it could be used a few times, but the possibility of it exploding and injuring or killing everyone around was much higher. Even if that didn't happen, it was still likely to crack and become essentially useless as a gun on board a vessel. However, they needed as many guns as they could to defend the English shores against this impending Spanish armada, so they made a lot of cannon very quickly out of iron and they engraved all of these with the mark of Queen Elizabeth. So those guns were meant to be used no more than a few times in a very specific battle. But those guns had fallen into the hands of the Spanish, and were still being used almost 100 years later to man the fort on Providence Island. So it's no wonder that when the English attacked, they took the fort and the island with the loss of not one Englishman and only one Spaniard dying in the attack. Alexander Squimelin wrote about this attack as well, but there's something I'd like to note very quickly. He calls in the most recent translation the island St. Catalina, which is the smaller islet off Providence Island. In the older editions, which I'm actually attempting to record an audiobook of right now, he calls that island St. Catherine, which is a different island altogether. So to be clear, the island fort that they're talking about is the fort on Providence Island. Quote, the first landing was on the island of St. Catalina, lying off the mainland coast of Costa Rica, some 35 leagues from the River Cargue. The buccaneers forced the Spanish garrison on the island to surrender all of the fortifications. Some of these Mansvelt ordered to be demolished, and other of these to be enforced. Here he left a garrison of 100 men, together with all the slaves who had belonged to the Spaniards. All of the rest of the artillery was carried over to an offshore islet, so close to St. Catalina the distance could be spanned by a bridge. When all of these defenses had been put in good order, Mensvelt burned down all of the homes on the larger island and put to sea, taking all of the Spanish prisoners with him. End quote. So that's a bit confusing, but when he says St. Catalina, he means Providence Island, and when he says that smaller islet, he actually means Santa Catalina. But that small island, St. Catalina, was a likely place to draw the pirates. You see, that small islet was used as sort of a prison colony for the Spanish. It was a place where any Spanish colony in the New World would send any of its convicted whores, witches, or adulterous women. So the pirates made that their new home with plenty of wine, guns, plunder, and booty. So Mansvelt sailed back to Jamaica and left about 200 of his men garrisoned on Providence Island. You see, he needed reinforcements from Jamaica, so he hurried to speak to the governor and hoped to acquire them. The governor, however, was not exactly pleased. The brethren had not followed any of the king's orders and attacked the Dutch. They had instead attacked two Spanish settlements, failing to sack the first and occupying the second. This was a hassle that the governor really didn't need at this time. You see, all of this came after the English and the Spanish, formally and finally, signed the Treaty of Madrid, ending any hostilities between them. And then, this Dutch captain, who was his highest-ranking naval officer, has the nerve to come to him and ask for reinforcements? Mansvelt was rebuffed, and he was sent away. Mansvelt climbed back on board his ship and sailed directly 
for Tortuga. His goal was to spread word of his new pirate haven and enlist as many men as possible. Once again, Alexander Exquimelin writes, quote, Mansvelt decided to go on to Tortuga and ask the governor for assistance, but he did not put this intention into effect, being prevented by death. End quote. So Mansvelt perished and was unable to gather the reinforcements he needed. This put Modi Ford in something of a tight situation. He was no fool. He realized exactly all of the problems that this presented. You see, Originally, he had intended Mansvelt to deal with the Providence Island problem and keep his own hands clean, but the Englishmen there really needed supplies and reinforcements if they were to keep the island. The governor didn't want to have anything to do with it officially, but now he didn't really have any choice. The man who was the admiral of the fleet had died. So, once again, he called a council and laid his plan. It was essentially twofold. One, on the island of Jamaica, he would raise the call for volunteers to aid the brethren on Providence Island. You see, the island of Providence was now essentially a new English colony, so the governor promised any man who volunteered a parcel of land and either a certain amount of gold or a few slaves. The leaders of that expedition, not just the regular volunteers, would be given high offices on this new colony. And for the second part of his degree, Moody Ford finally decided to issue letters of mark against the Spanish. This news was very well received. You see, the promise of once again buccaneering saw so many men leave their jobs on sugar plantations that all of the slaves on Jamaica couldn't hope to harvest it all. A lot of sugarcane went to waste. And then the promise of high office, namely the governor and lieutenant governor, called specifically to two men. The first man to volunteer as a leader and to help gather other volunteers was named Thomas Whetstone. You might remember a few weeks ago we talked about a young privateer who was actually a nephew of Oliver Cromwell. Back in England, he was a gambler and a rogue and a playboy, and he had acquired so much debt that the crown, King Charles, gave him a 100-pound loan, which he was told to reimburse by his actions in the Caribbean. We first met him off the coast of Cuba when the brethren were about to attack, with some very important news and a well-manned vessel with himself, a bunch of natives hostile to the Spanish, and freed slaves. However, after that raid on Cuba, this man, Whetstone, paid back his debt to the crown and really did well for himself in Jamaica. He had been raised to the speaker of the assembly there on the island, and he had a ship and a mind to be a lieutenant governor. The other man to answer that call was one Major Samuel Smith, who was ostensibly Captain Morgan's superior in the Jamaica militia. He was a military man who, at this time, outranked Captain Morgan, but he decided to join the expedition with the promise of becoming Providence Island's governor. These two ambitious young men, who were on Whetstone's ship that was filled with relief supplies and reinforcements, set sail for Providence Island in the summer of 1666. For a full two years, there would be no news from the island. In the meanwhile, though, back in Jamaica, Henry Morgan had done pretty well. After Smith left, he was given a promotion and was now Colonel Henry Morgan, in charge of the Jamaica militia. His brother-in-law, Major Bendloss, had been given his former position and taken command of Fort Charles. 
Morgan had, with the proceeds from his last raid, bought his first sugar plantation and begun the production of rum, and he had begun work on a family. He still wasn't the most famous man in the Caribbean, but he was almost certainly the most famous man on Jamaica. Being the nephew of Edward Morgan and a military leader, well, he was a frequent guest at the house of the governor. His future looked bright. He had promising prospects as a rich planter and probable politician. Until things took a turn for the worst. In August of 1668, a ship carrying two ragged, skeletal, bone-thin, and haunted-eyed men sailed into port. One was Samuel Smith, the prospective governor of Providence Island. The other was a man named Captain Henry Wacy, who was master of the merchant vessel Concord. The men were hungry, haggard, and covered in scars. They were barely clinging to life. Some say the only thing keeping them alive was their rage. They were brought immediately before Henry Morgan and the governor. They had quite a tale to tell. The tale was one of betrayal, suffering, and woe at the hands of the Spanish. It's, to me, reminiscent of that troublesome voyage of John Hawkins in Elizabeth's day. It would have much the same effect as well. Sending one man on a lifelong personal crusade of revenge against the Spanish Empire. Next week, we'll get into the gory details of what happened to these men on Providence Island. It's October right now, and Halloween is coming upon us quickly, so we're also going to talk about the gory details of the career of a French pirate who was called a monster, a devil, and in modern times, a sociopath. We'll also look at the aftermath of Providence Island and the first moves of what would make Henry Morgan one of the most famous pirates in history. I'd like to thank everybody for listening and for your patience. This episode took a little bit longer than I would have liked. Some things in the real world came up and I had to deal with those. However, we're now right back on track. I'd also like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. I'd like to thank those of you who have left a review on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to the show, and those of you who have helped donate to the show. Many of you have made donations through the PayPal button on our website, and I'd like to thank all of you. I'd like to thank especially our Patreon supporters, and give a shout-out to some of our new supporters. That is Casey, Rebecca, Grindalsh, Tara, and Mark. Thank you guys so much for pledging your support. I really appreciate it from all of you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you like the music, I definitely suggest you go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com or check us out on Facebook or Twitter, YouTube, or SoundCloud. Tomorrow, I'll be on my way to Tennessee where I'm going to be attending the Tennessee Pirate Fest. I don't have a booth or a costume or really anything planned, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun, so hopefully I'll see some of you there. Most of all, to everybody, thank you for listening.
Let him live on in legend tonight.